Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Jessica, the podcast where I interview experts with the goal to help you along your parenting journey. I'm your host and pediatrician, Dr. Jessica Hoffman. On today's podcast, it is part two of my interview with Jess Leahy. Last week, we talked about her first book, The Gift of Failure. And this week's episode, we will talk about her more recently published book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Now, as parents, I know we all want to raise independent, healthy children, uh, but this can be frankly hard to do in a culture that in many ways encourages alcohol use. So in this episode, Jessica talks about her own experience as an alcoholic, and she also uses evidence-based medicine to share ways we can prevent substance abuse in kids. I personally think this topic is so important, and I am so thankful to have Jess Leahy here today. Also, if you are enjoying this podcast, I would be so grateful if you would take the time to leave a review from whatever podcast platform you are listening. And now, welcome back, Jess Leahy. I'd love to talk with you about the second book that you wrote, The Addiction Inoculation. Um, I love the book. I think it's such important information that I think would benefit so many people. And so I just wanted to start by asking you, can you, can you describe your story? I know yeah, it's course. a personal story, but. Yeah. So I, uh, I actually was born to an alcoholic and, um, I knew that's the one thing I never wanted to be. <laughs> and so I was one of those kids who like, was always the designated driver and all that sort of stuff. And it was really difficult to um, not be allowed to talk about my parents drinking. Um, that was like the the thing, you know, we were supposed to pretend everything was fine and not talk about it. And there was a lot of gaslighting, blah, blah, blah. So I knew that's what I never wanted to be. And yet somehow in my four, in my late thirties and early forties, it just crept up on me. Like, you know, that glass of wine while I was cooking became, you know, two, which became four, which became, you know, me pre-gaming and making sure I had a really good buzz on before my spouse got home. Um, and finally, as I mentioned before, June 7th, 2013, I got just blackout drunk at my mom's birthday party and my husband had to take me upstairs. It was very messy. And my husband and my dad came upstairs the next morning and uh, he hates conflict, hates upsetting me. And yet he put that all aside to tell me that I needed help. And I was 100%. I was there. I Luckily, those moments came together of me being ready and his intervention with me. And um, and so I've been sober since then. And thank God. Thank God. And my, actually, think, I know. Oh, thank, and thank actually, my parent. Yeah. And my parent got sober after I did, too. So that's, you know, and the uh, the other parent that didn't really have an issue with drinking, just sort of decided it wasn't, it didn't make them feel great anyway. So why not just kick it too? So, you know, my, both of my parents are sober and, um, but I'm now left with a situation where I know that I have two children who may or may not, I don't know, I didn't know the research then be, uh, have a predisposition for substance use disorder. And, um, what does that mean? And so, you know, when the the experts say substance use disorder is a preventable public health problem. What does that word preventable mean and what works and what doesn't work and what's a myth and what's real and what's not. And there's all this research, but I really needed to read it all um, without having a horse in any one race and figuring out what's true and what's not and what's statistically significant and what's not. And, um, you know, sort of distill that down so I could know 
what was best from a prevention perspective as a parent. And I was teaching in a rehab for adolescents. I was teaching kids who, um, you know, were in rehab as young adults and how could we have prevented them from landing there? So all of that came together to be the addiction inoculation. Amazing. And are you still doing work with the, in the rehab center? So unfortunately the rehab that I used to teach in, they decided uh, to not admit kids anymore. So unfortunately now in Vermont, if your kid needs inpatient rehab, there is no place for that. Um, however, I do work at a evidence-based medical detox and recovery center called Santa at Stowe in Stowe, Vermont. And my job there is as a prevention coach and, and I'm sort of there just as a resource. I go and I spend time with the residents and help them understand how I continue to navigate my sobriety. And then we talk about prevention stuff as well for their own families. It's really, think, you know, it's also part of service for my own, you know, my own recovery. I think it's so wonderful that you talk about it because what I find as a physician, when I talk alone in the room with parents, there's a lot of drinking that happens that people don't admit to. I mean, I think yeah. we all, we all see it socially. People will go out and have a drink or two, but I mm -hmm. think that it's a lot more of an issue than people uh, like to admit or, or realize um, so I think yeah. it's so important that you're bringing this to light. Um, and We're at a really cool place right now, though, where, yes, drinking, uh, dr well, drinking over the past decade, drinking and drug use among um, kids, people under the age of 18 and young adults, for that matter, has gone down for the past decade. Um, and we did see a little bit of a plateau uh, right before COVID hit and then maybe a little bit of a bump during COVID. But for adults, it's been going up a little bit, especially during COVID. That's interesting. But, but, well, and especially in the areas of cannabis and psychedelic use and drinking. But the interesting thing is it is suddenly okay to talk about being sober curious or elective sobriety, or, you know, there's, there are all these books now um, that have made it okay to say, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic or not, but I know it makes me feel like crap. So I'm going to do dry January, or I'm going to do sober October, or I'm going to just take a month where I reassess my relationship with um, alcohol, whatever that is. Um, there's a lot of books by women about women and alcohol. Um, actually, alcohol reacts differently in women's bodies than than men's. And it's, you know, I don't care why you stop drinking or at least give it a shot. Um you know, a lot of people find that they feel a lot better when they're not drinking. They definitely tend to lose a little bit of weight and get better sleep and and their anxiety can drop. So, you know, alcohol does a lot of things to us that over the long term are really detrimental. I drank because I have anxiety disorder. Unfortunately, anxiety um, increases with alcohol use over time. So, you know, that was inconvenient. <laughs> I also wasn't sleeping. And unfortunately, you know, that's inconvenient too, when you have essentially three full-time jobs, if you include the drinking. So yeah, <laughs> if, you, if you include the drinking, I know yeah. it's, I, and I think it's a, it becomes a, a cycle, right? I mean, you, you feel anxious, so you drink and then you drink and then you feel more anxious. Yeah. Um, because it works in the short term. It's like those extrinsic motivators we were talking about with gift of failure. They're yes. tricky because they work really well in the short term, but they do not work over the long term. And I drank, you know, to fall asleep, which messes with your sleep and wakes you up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep. And for me, I was having panic attacks and anxiety attacks. And I drank to sort of quiet my anxiety, but over the long term, it actually increases your anxiety. So that's a bit of a bust. At least it was for me. 
I, I'm so curious, the, the work that you did at the rehab center, did you mm-hmm. find that a lot of the kids had childhood trauma? I, I, I've read, I'm, yeah. I'm starting a book by a, a man named Gabor Mate. And uh-huh. he in the he realm believes, of the hungry ghosts. Yes, yeah. yes. And he yeah. believes that the root of all addiction stems from mm-hmm. childhood trauma. Yep. What did so you there find? are a lot of so there are a lot of camps in um in substance use prevention recovery, you know, research. Uh Gabor Mate is squarely in the trauma camp and he is right on so many counts. It is you know, he's fantastic. I would also beg you to read The Deepest Well um by uh Nadine Burke Harris and reading Gabor Mateo is great. Reading Nadine Burke Harris is really important, but I think the reason it's so important to read Nadine Burke Harris is that her take is the CDC's list of adverse childhood experiences is incomplete. Yes. We need to talk about, you know, physical and sexual violence. We need to talk about living in a violent um, community. We need to talk about um, uh, what they're losing a parent. We need to talk about divorce and separation, but we also need to be talking about things like systemic racism and um, other things that are uncomfortable to talk about, like adoption. I mean, there's a lot of research going on right now about adoption and the risk of substance use disorder. Um, you know, people don't like hearing that divorce and separation are an adverse childhood experience. And are all divorces the same? Absolutely not. Is sometimes right. divorce and separation the right move? Absolutely. Um, so when I talk about this stuff, stuff with adults, I have to make it really clear. I'm not saying that you, I never want people to feel shame and guilt over the stuff that has happened to their children or has happened to them. We need to be able to assess risk accurately so that we can more specifically use the preventions available to us. So if I know my kids are genetically predisposed, or if I know my kids have gone through a divorce and separation experience, um, that kind of thing, then I can be a lot more specific about um, helping them with the stuff they need. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of that in addiction inoculation because I've put my kids through some stuff. (laughs) <laughs> and well, I, and, I, there, and I, 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 there's no use my feeling guilty and shame, guilt or shame about it. Um, I just need to go from where we are and, you know, give them as much prevention as possible to outweigh that trauma. And I like how you talk about genetics is definitely an influence, but it's not the writing on the wall. No, it's 50 to 60% of the risk picture, according to Mark Shuket. So, um, yeah, 50 to 60% is, is not the writing on the wall. It is not destiny. Um, you know, my husband, yes. uh, was raised in a family with a lot, with definitely with genetics for substance use disorder. And he has a, I, I hate using the words normal, but you know, he, he doesn't have an issue with moderation. So if you could give advice to parents listening, what's the best way to help prevent substance abuse mm-hmm. in children? The clearest sort of evidence out there is that The younger a child is when they first try drugs and alcohol, the higher their lifelong risk of developing substance use disorder. And when we talk about terminology, you know, substance abuse, we're supposed to be using person first. Um, So like I am a woman with alcohol use disorder. I also use the term alcoholic. So there we are. Um, The younger a kid is when they first try drugs and alcohol, the more likely they are to have substance use disorder during their lifetime. If they start it in eighth grade, they have about a 50% chance of developing substance use disorder during their lifetime. Tenth grade, it goes down a lot. And then if we can get them to like 
18 or 21, we can really get it down to like 10%, which is what it is in the general population. Um, 90% of people who have substance use disorder in their adulthood report that they started before age 18. So delay, delay, delay is the message. And that means we've got to kick a few of the myths to the curb. Like that whole well, kids are going to drink anyway, so they might as well do it in my basement and I'll take all the keys away. We know that kids, parents who have a permissive stance on um, kids using drugs and alcohol, um, the, their kids are have a much higher risk of developing substance use disorder. We know that parents who have a consistent, clear message of no, not until two things, either it's legal for you, which I'm less worried about than frankly, the fact that their brains aren't done developing until the early to mid twenties. So the longer a kid's brain can grow and develop and make the connections and do all the things that it has to do unimpeded, the more, the better their brains are going to be and the lower their lifelong risk of substance use disorder is. And so as a parent who has two children raised with different rules before I did the, re- the um, research for this book. My 23-year-old was raised with the whole, of course, you can have your own sips and maybe your own glass of wine at dinner because, oh, those European families who raise their kids, I want my kid to be like that. Well, the European Union has the highest um, levels of alcohol consumption and the highest levels of deaths attributable to alcohol consumption in the entire world. So if we're going to hold any place up as our end all be all mythological romantic vision of moderation, it really should not be the European Union. Um, so we had one kid who, you know, was allowed to have sips and stuff. And then after I learned this stuff, I went to my younger kid and I said, sweetie, I screwed up. I raised your brother using one set of rules. And I'm really sorry to do this, but we're going to change the rules for you because based on what I know now, no, you can't have beer, wine, alcohol, any drugs or alcohol until your brain is done developing and it's not done yet. And for me to do anything else, either because it's easier for me or more convenient for me or fulfills some romantic fantasy on my part, wouldn't be doing the right thing for you. And so I, you know, I'm just going to do the best I can based on the information I have now. What I love about that approach is that you're, you're still, you're trusting your child, like you're, you're, you're educating them on why you're concerned, but you're trusting them. So like where I worry is if my kids go to their friends' houses, I don't know that I want to be that parent that's asking who's there, is there alcohol <laughs> there? You know, it's, I don't diff- be it's too, hard to be that parent. I'm a, too I'm, intrusive. Yeah. Um, yes, yes, that's true. Yeah. I'm just going to, yes. However, (laughs) I wrote a book on this. I mean, what am I going to do? Not do that thing. And (laughs) it's it's not that I'm like, and, and I also wrote a book called the gift of failure about not spying on my kids or reading their emails or reading their texts. And so where's that line for me? And so what we know about the best, um, prevention science is that when we give kids real information about how their brains develop, how drugs and alcohol mess with their brain development, um, and give them really good information based on the best science we have. And we support them and we give them a really clear message of no, not until your brain is done developing. Those kids are far less likely to have substance use disorder during their lifetime. And then part of that is trusting kids to make good decisions based on that information. Are they going to all the time? Of course not. 
But we also have warped perceptions about how many kids are drinking. Like, you know, I wasn't even going to stick a, a college chapter in this book. Like, why bother? Everyone drinks in college. Turns out I was totally wrong. We do this misperception thing as human beings where we overestimate A, how much everybody drinks and B, how much, um, how invested they are in having alcohol around. And that skews our perceptions and drives the way we operate. Like, would you have a Super Bowl party without alcohol? Well, of course not. You have to have booze when it's football. But it turns out that like, it turns out that we're people are less invested in having alcohol uh, available at every single function than we than we would think. And you know, if you tell your kid, you know, the classic retort, you know, here have a sip of this beer, you know, to your eighth grader, and and they say no, and then the person is like, the other kid is like, oh, come on, it's no big deal, everybody does it. But if your eighth grader knows that that's not true, that less than twenty five percent of eighth graders admit to having had a sip of alcohol before um, by the time they graduate eighth grade then at least your kid knows in their head, huh, well, that's not true. You know, giving them real information is so important to prevention. Okay. So I like this delay, 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 mm-hmm. real information. Yep. Um, and then for consistent parents, consistent and they, clear messages. Yeah. Consistent and clear messages. No, I, and I think when you talk about educating your kids, I think that's so valuable because I think if, I think parents want to shy away from these conversations, but they're mm-hmm. actually, so important to be had. Well, and the key to those conversations and ask anyone who writes about difficult topics like Peggy Orenstein, who writes about boys and sex. She has two wonderful books, boys and sex, girls and sex. And she'll tell you the same thing. These challenging conversations, these embarrassing, humiliating, uncomfortable, squirmy conversations, the more you have them, the easier they get. I mean, in our house, it is absolutely totally normal to talk about um, drugs and alcohol. Is it still a little squidgy to talk about sex? Sure. I'm not an expert on talking to kids about sex, <laughs> but you know, the more we have these conversations, we've just, absolutely. we've just crossed there in our family. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear it gets better. <laughs> and it's not just one conversation. It is a bajillion conversations and really effective substance use prevention starts in preschool and kindergarten. Do you have any recommended resources for parents? Of course, your book. Um, but do you have any websites or mm-hmm. reading materials that you think parents should go towards? I know we were talking, I, I heard you say that D.A.R.E. Is, is not not that effective. Well, so there have been various iterations of D.A.R.E. The problem with D.A.R.E. originally was that it came out of a law enforcement perspective, and it was a lot of sort of scared straight sort of stuff. And we know scared straight doesn't work. Don't just say no, doesn't work, that kind of thing. Um but Dare has actually revamped their uh, their materials and their the way that they handle that stuff. Okay. So the thing that I do in the addiction inoculation, especially in the chapter about education, is you know we I found out that only fifty seven percent of schools in this country have any substance use prevention program, and of that fifty seven percent, only ten percent of those programs were based on evidence of efficacy. But there are organizations out there that actually evaluate these programs to find out over the long term if they work. So I outline those and I tell you exactly where to look to find them. So look to see what's happening at your school and then dig into it and find out, okay, what's this program called? And then look it up and I, I give you resources for places to look that are clearing houses for information on whether a program is proven effective or not, or if it's just promising, or if no one knows, or if it is like early iterations of D.A.R.E., 
like I went to an, through an early iteration of DARE and the early iterations of DARE actually made kids more likely to pick up drugs and alcohol um, after they'd gone through the program. No, I'm so curious. Do you, do you find that the more that you learn about drugs and alcohol, the more it helps you stay away? I want to say yes, but what I'm an alcoholic and my brain does, my brain tells me things I can't trust. My brain tells me a lot of things about how I would feel better if I had a drink. I could manage this situation better if I had a drink. I have learned that I have to rely on evidence uh, that I can't always trust my brain. There's a fantastic episode of um, Dax, Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert called um, Seven Days. Dax was sober for 16 years before he relapsed on opiates and lied to everyone in his life about it. And he is someone well acquainted with what drugs and alcohol can do to destroy his life. And yet he explains in that episode how his brain tricked him into thinking it was okay again. And so, you know, I do a lot of relying on, you know, my community, the people I am, um, that rely on me to show up for them sober. And, um, and so I try really, really hard to not, uh, think too much, let my brain cogitate too much on, um, whether I should drink or not. I just have to say, I, I can't drink period. So I would love to say that, uh, yes, all this information changes the way I think about other people and how we prevent and stuff like that. But, my best thinking is what got me drunk and kept me drunk in the first place. So I sometimes yes. have to take a pass on, on my brain and go over to evidence or my community to remind me um, of the deep doo-doo I can get in when I listen to my own way of thinking sometimes. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> it's hard to not be able to rely on your own best thinking, but there we are. Some of us can't. You're, you're, you're doing, you're honestly, it's very, it's inspiring. It's inspiring. And it's, and the, and you're, and the work that you're doing from that, I think is going to help a lot of people. I hope so. And, you know, I hope for me that I can continue to show up every day for, you know, whether it's the people at, at Santa at Stowe or the kids that email me. I just got back from a school in Houston and I was there to talk about gift to failure, but I made it clear that they could email me about um, substance use and whether it was about them or their parents or their family or whatever. And I, I have 20 emails sitting in my email box from kids wanting to talk about drugs and alcohol and themselves or people they love. And I have to be able to show up for those people. And I can't do that if I'm drunk. So, And and what's so wonderful is that I think there's a, there's such power in someone's story. And so it's so meaningful when you can share your, that, I mean, it's so, it's such a gift to everybody that you share your story because it just makes it that much richer and deeper, the advice that you're giving. And there's so many different kinds of stories out there and there's always something to identify with in each one. I love here. I mean, I wouldn't be a writer if I didn't love stories or an English teacher for that matter. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, your gift. It was such an honor to talk to you. And I, oh, I, I look you. forward to continuing to support everything that you do. Thank you so, thank so you. much. I'm just really, really grateful to be able to have the opportunity to talk about this stuff. I'm grateful that people are willing to talk about this stuff. And tell people where, where do you want them to find you? I know you have an Instagram page, your podcast, am, hashtag am so writing. 
all of my stuff is over at jessicalahey.com. Um, you can always find all the stuff, including like oodles of book recommendations on a bibliography that's there under speaking. There's a little thing that says download speaking bibliography and all my favorite resources are there. Um, I just started this thing figuring some people don't want to learn about this, uh, this addiction stuff in public. I just started a new Instagram and TikTok thing where every single day I post a 90 second video and I'm literally just making my way through the book beginning to end. <laughs> and we're on, I think I'm on, you know, episode 13 or 12 or something like that. And we'll just keep going until it's over. And, um, and we learn about this stuff privately. I'm, I'm happy to meet people wherever they want to learn this stuff. And if it means it's just the two of us online, that's, that works for me too. Beautiful. Thank you so, so I'm much. At, Thank you I'm for, at Teacher okay. Leahy on at Teacher Leahy on Instagram and at Jess Leahy on uh, on TikTok. Thank you so much. I, I I think anybody listening that wants to help prevent substance abuse in their children uh, will find this really really helpful. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Ask Dr. Jessica. I also wanted to say a big thank you to Jess Leahy for coming on and sharing her story. I really believe it is people like Jess that change lives for the better. And if you know anybody who may enjoy this episode, please share it. You never know who will listen and benefit from the information. See you next Monday.